0: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod50 for 50% off. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon
1: Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, roles, and other cool stuff. This week, we'll talk about why we have both the word a and the word an, and a whole bunch of other weird pronouns, and about how the word lonely used to mean something different from what it means today. Last week, I talked about how words such as adder, apron, and umpire originally began with the letter N. Which was lost when phrases such as a adder, a an apron, and a non-pair were rebracketed as an adder, an apron, and an umpire. I also talked about how nouns such as nickname and notch originally didn't begin with an, but gained one when phrases such as an eek name and an och were rebracketed into a nickname and a notch all these changes were possible because the indefinite article has two forms a and an in addition to these common nouns i talked about how some proper nouns such as ned and nell were created when the affectionate phrases mine ed and mine ellen underwent similar rebracketing if you go back a step though you start to wonder why we have these alternative forms, a and an, and my and mine, that led to the rebracketings, And why do we still say, for example, an apple instead of a apple, when we don't say mine apple instead of my apple? Of the two forms of the indefinite article, an is the older one, According to the Oxford English Dictionary, it comes from the Old English word for one, which was pronounced something like on. However, when the word wasn't stressed, the a ah vowel was shortened, so that an was pronounced more or less as un, as it still is today, when we're not talking about it as a word, like I am here, an apple. Unlike today, though, an was used before words beginning with vowels and words beginning with consonants. The form A, which is what we now use before consonant sounds, came about as a phonetic simplification. Without the N right next to a consonant at the beginning of the word, pronunciation is just easier. The Oxford English Dictionary says that the loss of N happened over the course of three centuries, starting in the 12th century. The change was so thorough that it even happened before words beginning with a vowel, For a while, speakers were saying a-apple instead of an-apple before things settled down into the situation of standard English today. Some people do still use a even before vowels, but these days it's regarded as non-standard. Now, just as a developed from the older form an, the forms my and thy developed from the older forms mine and thine mine started losing its final n before a consonant at about the same time as an did in the 12th century in the following century so did thine but for whatever reason even though we still have the two forms a and an the forms mine and thine as possessive pronouns have fallen by the wayside the oxford english dictionary has examples of my and thy coming before words that began with a vowel in the early 15th century Such as lift up thy eyes to heaven. And they had finally taken over as the standard forms by the end of the 1700s. Or at least my did. Thy did somewhat, only to be replaced by your later, which we'll probably talk about sometime in the next month or two. There are a few exceptions in which mine is still used as a possessive pronoun, though. You'll sometimes find it in poetry or song lyrics, for example. The Battle Hymn of the Republic, written in 1861, begins with the line, "'Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.'" Notice that eyes begins with a vowel. Also, if you want to put the possessive pronoun after a noun for stylistic effect, you'll use mine. Walt Disney did this in the movie Dumbo in the song Baby Mine. But before mine and thine fell out of favor— they were enough of a team that they made some ripples in the pond for the rest of the possessive pronouns. That final N for mine and thine was enough of a recognizable pattern that a process of analogy kicked in and people started putting a final N on the other possessives, giving us his'n, her'n, our'n, your'n, and their'n. According to the American Heritage Dictionary, these final N forms date back to Middle English, but exist these days only as regional forms. Now, as far as I know, there was never an itsen form of its, but that's not surprising since its only joined the ranks of possessive pronouns at the beginning of modern English. Before then, speakers just used his. While forms such as ourin and yourin were created in Midland and Southern England by analogy, with mine and thine, in Northern England, a different analogy was going on. The possessive pronouns her, our, your, and their were gaining an S at the end instead of an N by analogy with the possessive form for singular nouns and proper nouns, such as squigglies. This possessive pattern, plus the fact that his already ended in S, made it easy for most of the rest of the possessive pronouns to gain a form ending in S. These, of course, are our familiar and now standard words, hers, ours, yours, and theirs. Furthermore, once thee, thou, thy, and thine fell out of use, mine was the only remaining possessive pronoun ending in N. Mine, yours, his, hers, its, ours, theirs, one of these things is not like the other. With such an obvious exception, it was almost inevitable that the forces of analogy would complete the job and add s to mine to produce mines. The Oxford English Dictionary has this form in Scottish English from the 17th century and in Irish English and Caribbean English from the 20th century. The American Heritage Dictionary notes that minds is also associated with African American vernacular English. Actually, I'm curious why minds didn't become standard, along with all the other S ending possessive pronouns, but that's language for you. Even now, the system of possessive pronouns is a little unpredictable. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, an independent writer and consultant specializing in language and grammar and a member of the Reynoldsburg, Ohio School Board. You can search for him by name on Facebook or find him on his blog at literalminded.wordpress.com.
0: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey
1: there. If you are a curious person who loves to learn, there's another podcast I think you'll really enjoy. Freakonomics Radio is hosted by best-selling author Stephen Dubner and drives into the hidden side of business, economics, and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, and Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics, like why using swear words is more important than you think, and the psychology behind why projects are always late. New episodes of Freakonomics Radio are available every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast This next segment is by Amelia Worsley, an assistant professor of English at Amherst College. Former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy says the most common pathology he saw during his years of service, quote, was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness, unquote. Chronic loneliness, some say, is like, quote, smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It kills more people than obesity, unquote. Because loneliness is now considered a public health issue and even an epidemic, people are exploring its causes and trying to find solutions. While writing a book on the history of how poets wrote about loneliness in the Romantic period, I discovered that loneliness is a relatively new concept and once had an easy cure. However, as the concept's meaning has transformed, finding solutions has become harder. Returning to the origins of the word and understanding how its meaning has changed through time gives us a new way to think about modern loneliness and the ways in which we might address it. Although loneliness may seem like a timeless, universal experience, it seems to have originated in the late 16th century when it signaled the danger created by being too far from other people. In early modern Britain, to stray too far from society was to surrender the protections it provided. Distant forests and mountains inspired fear, and a lonely space was a place in which you might meet someone who could do you harm with no one else around to help. In order to frighten their congregations out of sin, sermon writers asked people to imagine themselves in loneliness, places like hell, the grave, or the desert. Yet, well into the 17th century, the words loneliness and lonely rarely appeared in writing. In 1674, the naturalist John Ray compiled a glossary of infrequently used words, and he included loneliness in his list, defining it as a term used to describe places and people quote, far from neighbors, unquote. John Milton's 1667 epic poem, Paradise Lost, features one of the first lonely characters in all of British literature, Satan. On his journey to the Garden of Eden to tempt Eve, Satan is said to tread, quote, lonely steps, unquote, out of hell. But Milton isn't writing about Satan's feelings. Instead, he's emphasizing that he's crossing into the ultimate wilderness, a space between hell and Eden where no angel has previously ventured. Satan describes his loneliness in terms of vulnerability. From them I go, this uncouth errand soul, and one for all, myself exposed with lonely steps to tread the unfounded deep. Even if we now enjoy the wilderness as a place of adventure and pleasure, the fear of loneliness persists. The problem has simply moved into our cities. Many are trying to solve it by bringing people physically closer to their neighbors. Studies point to a spike in the number of people who live alone and the breakdown of family and community structures former British Prime Minister Theresa May set her sights on combating loneliness and appointed a minister of loneliness to do just that in January of 2018. There's even a philanthropy called the Campaign to End Loneliness. But the drive to cure loneliness oversimplifies its modern meaning. In the 17th century, when loneliness was usually relegated to the space outside the city, Solving it was easy. It merely required a return to society. However, loneliness has since moved inward and has become much harder to cure. Because it's taken up residence inside our minds, even the minds of people living in bustling cities, it can't always be solved by company. Modern loneliness isn't just about being physically removed from other people. Instead, it's an emotional state of feeling apart from others without necessarily being so. Someone surrounded by people or even accompanied by friends or a lover can complain of feelings of loneliness. The wilderness is now inside of us. The lack of an obvious cure to loneliness is part of the reason why it's considered to be so dangerous today. The abstraction is frightening. Counterintuitively, however, the secret to dealing with modern loneliness might lie not in trying to make it disappear, but in finding ways to dwell within its abstractions, talk through its contradictions, and seek out others who feel the same way. While it's certainly important to pay attention to the structures that have led people, especially elderly, disabled, and other vulnerable people, to be physically isolated and therefore unwell, finding ways to destigmatize loneliness is also crucial. Acknowledging that loneliness is a profoundly human and sometimes uncurable experience rather than a mere pathology might allow people, especially lonely people, to find commonality. In order to look at the epidemic of loneliness as more than just an epidemic of isolation— it's important to consider why the spaces of different people's minds might feel like wildernesses in the first place. Everyone experiences loneliness differently, and many find it difficult to describe. As the novelist Joseph Conrad wrote, quote, Who knows what true loneliness is? Not the conventional word, but the naked terror. To the lonely themselves, it wears a mask. Unquote. Learning about the range of ways others experience loneliness could help mitigate the kind of disorientation Conrad describes. Reading literature can also make the mind feel like less of a wilderness. The books we read need not themselves be about loneliness, though there are lots of examples of these from Frankenstein to Invisible Man. Reading allows readers to connect with characters who might also be lonely but more importantly, it offers a way to make the mind feel as though it's populated. Literature also offers examples of how to be lonely together. British romantic poets often copied each other's loneliness and found it productive and fulfilling. There are opportunities for community in loneliness when we share it, whether in face-to-face interactions or through text. Though loneliness can be debilitating, it's come a long way, from its origins as a synonym for isolation. As the poet Ocean Vuong wrote, quote, loneliness is still time spent with the world, unquote. That segment was written by Amelia Worsley, an assistant professor of English at Amherst College. It was originally published in The Conversation and appears here through a Creative Commons license. Next, I have a familect story from Chris. Hi, mignon. Um, My name is Chris Bacon, and I have a family story. And this is an expression that my grandmother would say, and then um, and then my father would say it, and me and my sisters now say it. And the phrase is in reference to um, when you've had a really good meal and you're full. And my grandmother would say, "My sufficiency has been suffocified." And I've tried looking this up, and I I, I can't even find the word safantified anywhere. But I I just think it's a great phrase, and uh, I, I love saying it, and now my husband says it too. And uh, I hope you enjoy the story. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Chris. Your grandmother sounds like a kick. How creative. If you want to share the story of your family, a family dialect, or a word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at eight three three two one four girl. Call from a nice quiet place and we might play it on the show. Grammar Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast, thanks to our audio engineer Nathan Semmes and our editor Adam Cecil. Our marketing associate is Davina Tomlin, and our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings, who would like to travel to Croatia, especially for the beaches. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen, and our intern is Cameron Lacey. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening.